This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hello, welcome to the Ask Wrexham Podcast. I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and it's time for my weekly treat answering all your brilliant questions. Uh, so, the usual intro, hashtag ASKWXM, Ask Wrexham, is what we use on Twitter for people to get in touch with us. During the commentaries, we found that we didn't have enough time to get through many of the, the questions during commentaries and also some great questions that we did answer we felt probably justified being spread to a different audience again afterwards. So for those reasons, that's why this podcast exists. So any Ask Wrexham questions that we can throw into the show, we certainly will. Right, let's get down to business. We've got a lot today. Um, some came during the Coventry match some during the Bromley match and others general ones and there are some fantastic contributions by Wrexham fans answering those questions as well they made my life easy for me or at some point taught me stuff so um firstly it's Jay Ruby and he says uh was there a noticeable increase uh, in visitors to Wrexham because of the series and Wrexham FC becoming a global football brand and then the most appropriate PS did you ever think you'd see Wrexham FC and global football brand in the same sentence? Well, I can answer that second one very quickly. No, <laughs> absolutely not. This is a, a remarkable thing. Even when Robin Ryan at the takeover talked about expanding our name, I was like thinking, okay, yeah, if you get you get half a percent of, say, the North American international audience, that's a lot of people. But I still didn't realise it would go like this. It's amazing. As for the visitors, well, my best source for that would be an article that was in the Daily Post last week, an interview with Wayne from the Turf, and he said he's getting, was it 20 to 30 uh, foreign visitors per day, that he had 50 Australians in there, was it last week, he said, and that he estimates that over the last eight weeks he's had about a 1,000. So, you know, if you work out that people coming to Wrexham uh, and interested in the club will probably pop into the turf. It's probably a decent idea. Wrexham's not really a tourist town as such. We do get tourism, but it tends to be more people who might want to stay in the town and travel around to see the scenery, because there's an awful lot of beautiful North Walian scenery within an hour or an hour and a half of Wrexham. So we do get people staying for that reason. Our main tourist thing, really, is uh, St Giles Church in the middle of town, because Elihu Yale, the founder of Yale University, is buried there. Um, he was a local fella. And the there's a, a tower, I've forgotten its name, in Yale, which is a replica of the St. Joseph, St. Gi uh, Giles Tower in the middle of Wrexham. So, yeah, we're getting, we're getting a few. Now then, my eyesight's getting worse and worse. I do apologise. The Wrexham fans were amazing at Coventry, and the opposing team's videos of the Wrexham fans really show that. Uh, in the US, we have some very loud stadiums, especially in college football. What's the loudest stadium you've ever been to, football or other? I have been racking my brain over this and trying to think of a comprehensive answer, and I, I haven't yet. Um, I mean, partly, ironically, sometimes the loud ones are the smaller ones because the roof is low and it keeps the noise in. Some big ones don't keep the noise so well. Wembley is loud when it's full, although... Um, they have that irritating modern 
habit of playing incredibly loud music up until the start of the match, which I think is peculiar because fans make the best atmosphere at a sports event, for my money. Um, so anyway, I was trying to think this through. And well, firstly, I went to university in Liverpool. Um, and so I've been on the cop at Liverpool when it was standing up. That was loud. That was very loud. I've also been fortunate enough to be to quite a few recent European games at Anfield. And, and yeah, it is. it lives up to the reputation on European nights, certainly, uh, that it's loud and it's raucous. There's lots of singing going on. Um, so being on the cop, the famous cop there, definitely is a, a terrific atmosphere. Then... I've also been lucky enough to go on the yellow wall at Borussia Dortmund. My son and I often will get a cheap flight and just go for a weekend or one night somewhere in Europe once a year. We've always tried to before COVID. And so we've seen quite a lot of European football. And the Dortmunds, that stand, also lives up to its reputation. It's loud, it's massive. It's the biggest terrace in Europe, I believe. Um, and so that's terrific. Although, as German clubs go, uh, Germany has a really vibrant fan culture. And I would recommend uh, some of the second division German teams. Now, is it the ground or is it the fans? I don't know. Maybe this is more the fans. But Arminia Bielefeld we went to see in the second division against Magdeburg. East German club actually has links with Wrexham. Which is something for another time if you want me to talk to you about it. Um, but if you Google Wrexham Mad... Oh no, if you go on the YouTube, the Wrexham channel, look, at, look for Magdeburg. I did make a little video explaining it all. Um, but... That was an atmosphere and a half. It was. It felt like a proper old nineteen eighties football match. It had a bit of edge to it as well. But oh gosh, it was like going back in time. I was also remarkably lucky that I went to the last game ever at Athletic Bilbao's famous San Mamed Stadium before they moved to their amazing new stadium, which essentially is built right on the edge of where the old one was. Um, and that was a very old-fashioned ground as well, and had a great atmosphere. Um, but I probably, although it was it was terrific, I probably didn't get the best of it for the simple reason that I was right at the front behind the goal. So sometimes being under the roof helps to keep the noise in. I wrecked some games. I remember commentating at Preston North End and they built this big new stand. And I, I'm not totally sure I can explain this, but it was very loud. I think it was built to keep the acoustics in, so it was cleverly built. At one point, it got louder and I swear to you, I don't know what how what to call it. I can't call it a sonic boom, because obviously a sonic boom is something extreme. But the sound seemed to suddenly just hit the back of the stand, and there was this weird sort of noise, like a whip crack, just went along the back of the stand and then stopped, and then didn't happen again. I don't know what it was, but it must have been some sort of sonic phenomenon. I don't know. It was weird. Really weird. Um, but I've never experienced that before or since, and I don't know what it was. Um... Other noisy games, other noisy stadia. I'll probably think of a brilliant example that we want to stop doing this. Um, but yeah, those are those are. That's not a bad little selection. Uh, Pavlov's turtle. Now this is a good one. Do you think Wrexham could have had more tickets if uh, if offered? And how disappointing was the Coventry attendance? Amazing support from the town. Well, firstly, yeah, amazing support from the town. It really was. Uh, yeah, we definitely would have sold more because we sold out our 4,500 allocation. So, yeah, it's great, isn't it? There's no question we would have been able to. As for the Coventry crowd, now, to be fair, 
I've got up here the average the attendances of all their home games. Ignore the top one, because as we've said, Coventry have gone through some scandalous problems this year. It's been despicable how they have things have gone for them. And their first match wasn't played in Coventry, so that's why I had such a poor crowd. Um but actually it's pretty much bang on average. Um okay, we brought a lot of fans, but some of these other clubs are big and, and they bring a, a few fans. Uh, so I think really, to be fair, it wasn't that bad a crowd from them, and I think it's you know maybe just an indication that their fans are fantastic and massively committed, but the, you know the, there is some wriggle room in there, I suppose, for for big occasions. Fourteen thousand of them, not bad. Um, now then, next year's Mike Ryan Assistant of the Year. <laughs> oh God, I get confused easily. Says, uh, Mark, I'm looking forward to my first Wrexham commentaries before the Coventry game. Canadian sports TV sync up. Um, and, and I just wanted to point this out. We were thinking about that global brand thing. We finally won over here. Um, sports, what does that say? I can't read it. Sportsnet Canada, our ESPN, are showing the game live on their main feed instead of the Premier League teams. Wrexham's becoming Canada's favourite UK football team. That is amazing because there were some. If, uh, Premier teams playing the same time as us, and to choose us instead, well, that does show something, doesn't it? You know. I mean, I've said before, I have Canadian family, I know now how proud they are of Canadian people doing well internationally. So Ryan Reynolds will mean a lot, I think, to Canadian broadcasters, um, and also they're proud of their Welsh heritage as well, so they'll notice that sort of thing too. So, yeah, you can see how it all that would link in the sort of. It's Ryan Reynolds' team. Let's, let's give them a go. I've got to say as well, the wonderful thing about this team at the moment is we're so entertaining and exciting to watch that broadcasters may well want to come back again because our games really don't tend to be boring nil-nil draws, do they? <laughs> nice. Next one. How much confidence does beating Coventry give us moving on back to the league, knowing we're good enough to beat a championship side? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very, very good question from Chris. Yeah, exactly. Um, we've just shown what we can do. I, I can't help spinning it around as well and thinking, what must Notts County think? <laughs> you know, when they see that we're 4-1 up at Coventry um, and they realise there's no fluke, what must they be thinking as well? But yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure the, a lot of, I mean, pretty much all these players have played in the Football League at higher levels. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure they have confidence in themselves, but confidence is a, is a fragile thing, isn't it? So, yeah, I, I would love to think that a lot of them will be feeling, uh, you know, yep, we can we can do this. A real sense of achievement and knowledge that they're a quality team because they are. Um, and then from Emmaus, Pennsylvania, that's a great name. Um, Chris Michener was hoping I'd stay dry, but was really interested in the singing. Um, why were Coventry playing John Denver's West Virginia? Um, now. He followed up another question. I want to take him together. Just, just saying, um, uh, what's the deal with Hey Jude? Why does every club sing that one? So, yeah, yeah, why? Um, I am not going to give a really good logical answer to this. And I'm going to sound a bit like a whinger as well. Some genius will come up with a song that fits into a, a, a football song that fits into a popular song. For some reason, um, let's say Country Roads sure is oh, Siri's no help. 
country roads was one of them. So it's just somebody being clever and cute and working at working it out. So the, you know, kudos to them. Then everyone just steals it and copies it. So go, looking at maybe Hey Jude first. Um, I'm not sure who exactly started it off, but uh, you're right. Every British team seems to just sing it now and just adapt it to their own their own uh, club. I suppose at least that works and that the bit that they sing is only got like two words in it so you can adapt it easily. Um, other ones are just exactly the same song and then they just pinch, you know, just change one word. The one that really used to irk me, if I'm honest, was Spandau Ballet's Gold. And all they would do was change the word gold to a one-syllable name of a player. Uh, Wrexham did this with Louis Moult, who was a very good player for us in the 2014-15 season. And so we, the, the fans are saying... Uh, we have Moltz. And then it just carried on with the Spandau Ballet, where it just makes no sense whatsoever. Always believe in your soul. you got the power to know you're indestructible. Um, uh, I mean, what's it mean? <laughs> what on earth does it mean? Um, and everybody was singing that for a one-syllable named player. Uh, Country Roads, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, actually, that was Man United was singing, singing Old Trafford Roads take me home to the place I belong um, and so and then that's just spread and other fans sing it you do get unique ones but even then eventually they spread that um that one you know when you hear fans singing you hear Wrexham fans singing ale 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 well I mean that was popularized by Liverpool in their European matches but it's that in itself is a European chant so, yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of unoriginal stuff. The people, oh, this, is my, this is my moaning bit. Bye, Ben. You know, Ale, 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 I'm recording, so no, please don't swear. You know, Liverpool were like the first clubs in Britain to do that, weren't they, really? But it's, it's what, European? French? Atletico, yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. I'm just moaning up like you, like I always do about how football fans are unoriginal with their songs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. They copy each other. That's your answer. Yeah, fair play. Right, so, have a nice evening. Yeah, Elliot Lee's songs, Charlton. Elliot Lee's Charlton's? Oh, right. So, so we've, we've, we've not even taken it and changed the name. We've <laughs> just taken his old team song. Nice, nice. Brilliant. Yeah. Didn't realise that. Thanks for educating me. There's one. Well, there you go. That's Ben. Wrexham regular. Top man. And, and there you go. So, <laughs> I just steal all the stuff off him and tell you it and pass it off as mine. So, yeah. So, Elliot Lee uh, songs. A Charlton song anyway. But, as you said, fans just copy. A song sounds good on TV. Then everyone's singing it. Um, some clubs are more original than others, to be fair. Some clubs, clubs have got a bit more of a sort of... I don't want to say hipster vibe about them shall we say and they try and come up with their own stuff a little bit more but uh you know yeah essentially that's what uh, that's what it is a lot of people, clubs just borrow each other's ones i don't want actually i should have asked ben then wrexham um sing a, a song to the tune of the sex pistols um anarchy in the uk i'm not sure i've heard of the clubs sing that um Ah, maybe I'll, I'll ask him that and find it next time. Anyway, I'm now talking in circles, so I'll move on. Uh, so Jim in Monticello, 
uh, says, how much money do we get for the Coventry win? But that question's been answered beautifully by others. So, Rex American Idiots pointed out first, £105,000 prize money. Obviously, that, that can go up if we continue to progress. Watch out, Sheffield. Um, and then, pointed out as well, of course, we get 55% of the gate receipts. To be fair to the FA Cup, it's a fairly egalitarian competition. And once you hit the third round, the, the lower division club gets 55% of the gate receipts. And he's done an estimate there. I have no reason to doubt it. So that would add another 125,000 on top. So we're probably reasonably talking about a quarter of a million from that one match. There'll be a television fees as well. I strongly suspect it was shown in, well, ESPN showed it in America. I strongly sus suspect they will have paid more than uh, S4C will have done to show it in Britain. But still, that's still money. Now, you know, everybody's waiting to see exactly what date the Sheffield United game will be. The reason it will not necessarily be Saturday on 3 o'clock is it could get picked up for live coverage. Now, if the BBC cover that game live, and there is, a, I think, a good chance of that because we are exciting giant killers. We've got our owners to add a bit of razzle-dazzle and we're playing a, a strong team, uh, probably the strongest outside the Premier League at the moment. So, you know, this, this looks like the sort of game that they show live on TV because you wouldn't want to miss out on us pulling off a giant killing. Um, and, and then you're looking at better money, much better than BT Sport payers for the league matches, which is really not that much in all honesty. So, yeah, that BT Sport package, by the way, doesn't bring all that much into clubs. I mean, maybe you can make residual amounts of money more than you would have done for, by, say, selling advertising because you'll have three or four games on live but that's not really much of a financial incentive for a club like Wrexham the BT Sport deal in itself but being on the BBC would be and it would help to keep spreading the words which as our owners astutely realise is, is as important as cash at the moment if not more so because they want to build us up as, a, as a, a going concern not one of those clubs that gets money pumped into it does well and then collapses um, now, Luke asked, what's Wrexham's highest finish in the FA Cup? And was that one of the top five ever performances by a Wrexham team? Well, the first question, Luke will have seen the answer because a few people jumped in quickly. We have, No, we have not reached that stage yet. Three times in our history, we've got to the last eight of the FA Cup. 1974, 1978 and 1997. Um, now, on each of those occasions, we were a third tier team, so a League One team. So it really is remarkable for that to happen once. For us to do it three times, again, shows that we've got a, a cup pedigree. I mean, if you were going to distill the essence of Wrexham Football Club, it would really be, um, you know, sort of brave little club cup fighters. Wrexham's the sort of club, you know, we've only been in the second tier four years. That's the highest we've been. So we've never been a side that's been really massively successful, but it's the sort of club you don't want. If you're a big club, you don't want to draw us in Wrexham. You know, or even at home, you're aware that there's something in our DNA that makes us pull off upsets. I have no idea why, whether it's belief, whether it's the fans getting really excited about cup games because they know what's happened. But, you know, I've had a lot of people, older fans, and I so agree with them after the Coventry game saying it's lovely because the last time we beat a team uh, from a higher division was 10 years ago. The last time we beat a Premier League team was 22 years ago. And, and it's lovely for them finally to experience a proper upset. 
not us winning the FA Trophy, which is great, but an actual upset where we go and we outplay and beat a team that's higher up than us. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a notable performance, but certainly wasn't in terms of how far we get to the competition. We've got to win two more rounds to get to that point again. Top five ever performances by Wrexham. Well, obviously that's a subjective thing, but I, I mean, I loved it. It was amazing, it was absolutely brilliant, and it feels like the starting point of more to come. But I would have to say nowhere near, really, um, because some of our upsets have been gigantic. Wrexham beating Arsenal in the FA Cup in 1992 was remarkable. Um, also, Wrexham beating Porto in 1984. These are not good Wrexham teams, beating the best teams in Europe. Uh, so there's two definite. I think those have got to be the top two. But we've pulled off a lot of upsets, including in those cup runs. We played Newcastle United and thumped them in 1978. Uh, we won at Southampton. We've, we've pulled off a lot of so big shocks. So it was great. 100%. Please don't get me wrong. But we've beaten quite a few top-level teams as well. In terms of gap between us and the opponents, I think we've got to look at that then. And Maybe I should have a quick look at how many times non-league teams have beaten championship sides away from home. It won't be often. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, it was brilliant, and it was historic, and it was massive. But I would not say top five, to be honest with you. We got to the quarterfinals, the last stage of a European competition, believe it or not, 1976. So, again, you know, you've, you've had to beat some decent teams to get to that point. And then we gave Anderlecht, who were... A, Belgian team who at that point were massive in Europe, a real scare. We lost what a uh, two one on aggregate. Um, Jim in Monticello again. He's just uh, just to point this out. One of those big games he watched the special on ESPN Plus of Mickey Thomas talking about the Wrexham Arsenal game. That's that nineteen ninety two game. Um, he prepared with a few pints of Guinness the night before and it worked. Yeah, I, I, so, you know, any youngsters watching, sports scientists would say it's a different game now. Uh, one of the many stories of people who went on the booze the night before and succeeded. Uh, <laughs> cricket is full of stories of players who stay up all night playing cards and drinking then go out and make hundreds and things like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Chris McCann. Said, what was the, the reaction in Wrexham over the injury of Buffalo Bills to Mar Hamlin? Um, well, as far as I'm aware, they're none really. Um, which is not to say, which is not to diminish how horrible it was. But I first heard about it when someone asked me a question on Ask Wrexham last week. To be honest with you, American football. Well, actually, as I'm. I'm assuming, Chris, you are from the US. Um, I'll, I'll address it just that. I try to avoid addressing it as purely in a, a US manner, these questions, even though I know an awful lot of fans are coming from the US because we are getting people from around the world. And I certainly don't want to ignore Canada because my auntie would kill me. Um, but I think particularly this maybe is a US. And maybe it's, this applies to North America as well. I feel a little bit like... North American sports fans consume sport in a slightly different way. And I, I'm very happy to be corrected on this. But I get the impression that if you're a sports fan, you're a sports fan, and you tend to have a fairly broad interest in sports. Now, obviously, you're going to have favourites, obviously. But <clears throat> it feels to me like, you know, if you're from a particular city in the, in the States, you will follow their baseball team 
football team, NBA team, ice hockey team. You know, it, it sort of comes across to me that way through just through American popular culture. Maybe I'm completely wrong in saying that. Whereas I'd say in Britain, I think we often do categorise ourselves as primarily fans of a particular sport. Uh, again, maybe I'm being unfair, slightly inaccurate with that, but I'm not saying we won't be only like one sport. But, you know, I would have to say football is my primary sport that I'm really interested in. I love other sports. I love cricket. Uh, I love cycling as well. Um, I, I have always enjoyed watching boxing, although not so much now because it's on pay-per-view. So US sports coming over here tend to be a little bit niche. And American football has got a, a, a decent following in Britain who are utterly committed to it. You know, I know a few people are into American football and they, you know, they really love it. And you see when they play the games at Wembley, how excited people get. And, <laughs> you know, there was a time when I knew two people who would come to the Wrexham games who were both big American football fans. Oh, and they used to love chatting about it. You know, I was like, you know, good. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm just surrounded by football fans. They're, they both love football as well. But, oh, when, when they meet each other straight into chatting about the latest games, I don't know a clue what they were talking about, I'm afraid. Um... So, because of that, the, the the horrible incidents, don't think it really... I didn't notice it making the news over here. And that might sound strange, but look at it this way. Um, last week, when I, I was asked, have similar things happened in British football? And I met, well, just in football in general. And I mentioned a few incidents that, you know, clearly haven't crossed the pond in the other direction, but were high profile. So... Um, yeah, uh, I don't think it really has made that much impact over here, I don't think. Now then, beer, bear, beer. I, I don't know, I always get, is it, is it a tone twister? I have trouble with your name. Uh, but, but saying, I'd love to hear the heartfelt stories from the cop. Maybe I could interview some of you on Ask Wrexham. Well, I'll tell you what, I, firstly, I'd love to do that. I absolutely. So, you know, any fans who fancy it, I think I'll get my head around this and work out a way to do it. So I think it might be asking maybe if people want to record videos or audio and send them in, which I can knit together with other things and footage. Uh, but I, I do love that idea. Um, also, I must say, if you want to read a few, the, the Fo Wrexham Football Club put out a tweet, was it earlier on today, saying times they are changing and asking for memories. And there are some nice ones on there as well if you want to go and have a look at it i think the leader did the same i haven't actually seen what the replies were but there are some nice ones on the wrexham thread so have a look at that and also here's <laughs> i've got some uh, quite a few points about the cop one of them oh heck i forgot to put the picture up right press pause no don't no don't press pause yet in a minute press pause and google wrexham pigeon loft cop and you'll get a picture of the big terrace of the cop but only a tiny stand right in the middle it's really weird looking i'm so annoyed at myself i meant to tee up a, a picture of it and i forgot to put it in um so it, it's a tiny narrow little stand it was uh, there in the mid 70s not for that long i don't remember it i started watching rex in 1970 i don't remember it um but there were some great questions where someone oh, Look, they've even put a picture up of it and I've cropped your ass. 
Carl asked, is it true the stand was from a cinema? And it is true, but I'm going to let the others, um, the people that are responding, tell the story for the simple reason that <laughs> I responded and I was then corrected. I got the wrong cinema. So have a little look at this. So Colin Booth, sorry, I'm going to slide out a picture. Colin Booth said, not sure, uh, but whoever that is set, reckons that the seats came from the Majestic Cinema. Yeah. Carl said it's a different world. Imagine Rob and Ryan phoning the Odium to ask for a few spare seats. But, wonderfully, somebody pointed out, John said it was indeed the balcony from the Majestic in Regent Street. Um, it's now Top Spoons, or Weatherspoons in Wrexham, uh, on Regent Street. So it's the, it's the football ground end of the town. And so basically when that was... Uh, when the cinema closed down, Wrexham bought the balcony seats put it on a sort of structure, put a roof over the top and put it on the cop. I am, like I said, I don't remember it. I'm told that the view from the seats was useless and you couldn't see bits of the bench. And it was more used really as a shelter. So when it was raining, the fans standing on the steps would go underneath the seats in order to uh, to stay dry. But somebody, I think it was John, well, we'll see in a second, also said that when Wrexham got promoted, under Ken Barnes in 1963, there was a picture taken of the players all standing on the steps behind that little stand. Oh, it wasn't just the 70s, then, was it? And there it is. He said it was... Uh... <laughs> That's tremendous, isn't it? The steps were a nightmare in high winds and frost. Brilliant stuff. And that's from John again. So, uh, yeah, so it's a little snippet of architectural history. Also talking about the cop, Jamie Lightning said that I mentioned the breeze on the pitch on Bromley. Uh, do I think it's partly due to the cop demolition? Now, yes and no. Uh, I, I think it's a possibility, isn't it, that if you remove a big structure from one side of the ground, you might have it make a difference to, you know, the atmospherics around it. And so it might alter things a little bit. However, it wasn't on Tuesday. It was just a very gusty day. Uh, the, the, the strong winds tend to come up the opposite way towards the cop over the top of the tech end stand. So, um, so I, no, I don't think that did happen. It could have done, but it didn't. But when the wind gets a bit more swirly, well, you never know. And then also, uh, Jane Lightning says, do you think they'll find anything interesting under there when they start digging out the foundations? Uh, yes, they already have. And I am so frustrated, Janie, I want to apologise to you because I did reply and say that I'd show you today. I have been looking on Google for about two hours for something that I found this morning and I can't find it again. I even looked at my search history to see if it was, you know, can I just jump back? I did everything I could, and I just could not find it. Um, although I haven't said that, it just struck me. I wonder if it was on my phone, but it's just, oh, I didn't. EB, I didn't check the uh, the history of my phone. I wonder. This is great, great podcasting, isn't it? Really exciting stuff. Well, this is not looking promising at all, I'm afraid. No, I don't think I'm going to find it. Never mind, sorry. It's just loads of me searching for cop and different things like that. What I saw was a stack of tank traps tank traps are like concrete cylinders and in the second world war they were strategically placed to stop tanks getting to certain places so if germany invaded britain these tank traps would be used to, to, to block the roads now at the end of the war 
they had no use. And Wrexham got loads of them and stacked them up as the foundations under the cop. And you could see some of them from the side, especially from the um, Wrexham Lager side. Um, but, but yeah, I, I saw a picture earlier today. And I, I, don't, I, I don't understand. I just can't drag it down. Really bewilderingness of a big stack of them. They'd obviously been retrieving from the foundation, from the, the muds underneath the the stands. So I'm so upset that I couldn't, I can't find a picture of it. And now this pretty little fella, spitball idea. I understand we have two games in hand, but please point, point me to the devil I need to sign a deal with to get knots to drop points today. Is it this guy? Well, it must have been spitball idea because they did drop points. Absolutely. Um, that, by the way, the reason I'm showing this as well, spitball, is, I'm sure you're aware, that's the Lincoln Imp. Now, it's on Lincoln City's badge, and it's a real thing. If you go to the Cathedral in Lincoln, which is a massive, beautiful building, uh, I say massive, it's a, bit, it's a big church. It used to be, when it was built, which I think is around the 1200s, the biggest building in the world, amazingly. Um, and there is a tiny little carving of that guy, the Lincoln Imp, just hidden in the ceiling. You have to know where to look to find him. And it's become a sort of um, folklore thing where people have door knockers in Lincoln in the shape of the Lincoln Imp. It's supposed to be good luck. Um, so yeah, maybe chosen wisely there, Spitball. Michelle Olsen. What are some of the reasons a play team might loan a player to another team instead of making the change permanent? Thanks as always. Well, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate your, your continued enthusiasm. Um, there are multiple reasons why players could get loaned out. So let's have a let's have a look at a few scenarios. I'll try and involve ones involving Wrexham players. So Jake Bickerstaff, who we saw playing superbly against Scunthorpe in the FA Trophy, he has been loaned out a couple of well three times I think by Wrexham. So in his case, the idea was to give him experience. So he was in the the well until this year we didn't have a, a reserve team, a second team, so he could only really play in, in the the youth side. Obviously, that's limited in terms of the quality of opponents you're going to be coming up against. And not only because they're all youth players, but also because Wrexham are not Chelsea or Man United. And so we can't demand to play high quality opposition. And when we do, we might get beaten quite heavily. And it, what do you learn from that? So Bickerstaff was loaned out to clubs to gain experience, first team experience of men's football, if you will. So he went out with Max Cluath to Carnarvon. And the Welsh League. The Welsh League is a, a lower standard of football than where Wrexham are by, by a fair bit, really. And I don't mean to be nasty saying that the Welsh League's brilliant, um, but it, it's not the same level. Um, but it's serious. And they both did extremely well for Carnarvon. It was also, I think, good experience as well, because rather than playing youth games in front of nobody, uh, Carnarvon have got some really sort of enthusiastic fans as well so they make an occasion of it give you that sense of you're playing something serious here and um, they both did really really well uh, big, uh, big staff scored quite a lot of goals for them but Clueth apparently was the one who really stood out as being too good if you like for that level and so Clueth got accelerated into the first team setup fairly quickly Bickerstaff needed more development um, you could see his promise but he didn't really feel he looks like he was someone who was going to get lots of games for us. He did get you know, a smattering, but we loaned him out twice to Nantwich Town, who are the league, two leagues below us, and he did well for them. 
Um, and so now when you see him at Scunthorpe, I said it in the commentary, he, he looks a bit different. He looks a bit more developed, a bit stronger. Um, well, he's always quite strong, but there's a sharpness to his play now that there maybe wasn't before. Um, I was impressed with him and these big centre-backs from Scunthorpe were trying to dominate him and they couldn't. So he's developed, I think, from going out alone. So loans often are to develop young players. Um, pardon me. And Clueworth's a good example of that, really. Um, you might loan a player out because he's a senior player, but he's not in your plans and you want to give him a chance to you know keep playing keep sharp if you will although that's you can oh gosh loans are a little complicated i should get i should answer this question with Geraint parry because he he organizes our transfers and he knows every tiny little dot and semicolon in the rules of, of loaning players but we if you, if you you can recall players often from loans, so you could pull them back if you feel that you you know you got injuries and you need that player back again. Um, so sometimes it's done for that purpose. Sometimes it's done just to get rid of somebody. Um, Wrexham did that a lot under Dean Keats the first time he was manager. He was an astute player of the transfer market, and he inherited a dreadful team and needed to get rid of people. But the problem is you're you're obliged to honor their contract so he he was quite cute they were all on one year contract so he contacted clubs who were interested in those players and essentially brokered the deals so that you know just take them now take them on loan until the end of their contract and then they you can have them because they're no longer a Wrexham player and the point is that other club would pick up their wage or at least part of their wage so it become it's financial it's a way of in, in Keats's case, he played it very clever, laying players off when they were still under contract, and we don't have to pay off all the contract because another club would pick up all or part of it, if that makes sense. And you're clearing space on the budget to bring new players in, which he did well. Um, so you can be cute and do it like that with a player who's got no future with you. Um, that usually works better if there isn't that much of the contract left. Or you do see some players who just get loaned out all the time and then coming back to their parents' club, even though they don't want them because people aren't willing to take them permanently. Uh, and then also it can be a good way to bring in cheap players because there's teams higher up the food chain than us who will want to loan lower teams, young lads, like we loaned Bickerstaff and Clueworth out. Unfortunately, we have discovered that the National League is the point where big teams think, well, there's no point. They feel that that's too low down and isn't competitive enough. So when we were in the Football League, we loaned some interesting players, often from Man United, who were players who played the odd game for Man United. You know, they were on the fringes of playing in their first team, and yet they came to us for a couple of months. Um, that can be a really effective way to boost your team. Plus, the big team will usually carry their wage, or at least a big chunk of it, so you're getting a, a good young player for free. Dean Saunders, who was our manager, he came in early on in the first season in non-league, was a big-name coach, and although it was his first job as a manager, and he was a Welsh international, he was very well-connected, um, brought in a lot of talented young players on that basis. He's thinking they're more technically talented than the National League players. Um, it'll be cheap to bring them in. The big clubs will be glad because we developed these players. So he succeeded in bringing a few in, but the problem is they were young, so they all tended to look good early on and then get tired out by the grind of playing all these games. Um, so yeah, there's lots of reasons. 
Sometimes you can do it just to get a bad apple out of the out of the squad as well. Quite frankly, somebody's creating and you get rid of them. Uh, it's an easier way than to selling them, if you will, as long as a, a club wants them and they're willing to go. So I hope that I hope that answered your question. I'll probably think of other stuff I could uh, think up in a minute on that one. Um, Janie Lightning again. The goal by Elliot Lee in the Coventry match was amazing. What's the longest goal a player's made at Wrexham? Well. Can't tell you for sure. There's no definite records. Um, Mike the ref, though, has come up nicely saying he remembers Joey Jones, proper club legend, scoring from the halfway line. Uh, it was around 1991, does that say? We won 5-4, I think. I'll have to find that one. I've heard people talk about that. I really can't remember it. Um, I was stood next to Joey's kid at the time. I'll have to find that because I've got there's quite a lot of video from around that period. Um... I'm trying to. I remember seeing Neil Salathiel, who was a very powerful player for Wrexham, who didn't score many goals at all, in a reserve game. It was Wrexham Reserves against Altrincham's first team at the racecourse, and he scored from his own half. It was a hell of a thump. He is a very powerful player who, you know, could get a lot of distance on the ball. I don't think he meant it, but it was a hell of a wallop by him. I do have an example of an extreme long-range goal involving Wrexham. I have a funny feeling all existing Wrexham fans know exactly what I'm about to show. I'm aware that when I play video on this podcast, it always seems to be of a catastrophe. But I give you Joss Miebe in goal for Wrexham, having what can only be described as a bit of a nightmare in a big game at Mansfield. Mansfield Town have doubled their lead. Huge kick from Marriott. One bounce, 2-0. What's the goalkeeper doing for for Wrexham? I mean... As soon as it's windy, it's skiddy, and he jumped underneath it. That's a terrible mistake for me from the goalkeeper. As soon as it's hit the floor, you know it's going in. The goalkeeper's still moving towards the ball as it bounces. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that's not optimal. <laughs> Bless him. So, yeah, goalkeepers are allowed to score. Um, Wrexham had one goalkeeper ever who has scored, Dave Gaskell, in the 1960s. But he scored from the penalty spot. Now then, Lou Sue says, I listened in awe in Pennsylvania to the FA Cup game against Coventry. And I, just, I went to ask... Oh, I'm sorry, I've got a light on the ceiling shining on it now. I can't read. I'm an English teacher. This is awful. I want to ask how incredibly lucky we are, we Wrexham fans are to have this great coach, Phil Parkinson. And there's another point in the same, talking about the um, the Bromley game. Hats off to Paul Parkinson for the subs working. Yeah, right. We've. I agree. We brought Parkinson in, obviously, as a big name, as a, a high-reputation coach. It was smart to do so, although I was very sorry for Dean Keats, who did a very good job, I thought, for Exxon. However, in the first half of last season, he did get quite a bit of stick because Wrexham fans expected instant results. And as we now can see, the constrictions we had of transfer windows meant that he, he couldn't put the side together in just the summer. So it wasn't complete when in the first half of the season. With hindsight, I think he did very well. To keep us in contention, but there was you know, there was a bit of concern about it. He's now shown really his value in so many ways. Firstly, the way he has compiled this squad is impressive. 
you can really see the tactical development throughout as well and how the plans he's putting into place embed themselves more and more. The second half of last season, it was beautiful. It was like clockwork for most of our games. And the way he's assimilated new players into that system successfully is really impressive. But it's not just that. Um, man, football fans often get frustrated that managers are a little bit cautious. And I understand that, although I feel a bit more the manager way that you, you know if you've if you've got a draw why give away a draw taking a gamble unless you really feel you need the win you know oh, that's a, I'm, I'm really simplifying that but i understand why managers are a bit ner nervous and shy maybe of taking chances parkinson's not shy of it which is ironic because everyone was moaning about him being defensive for the first six months but i i really i've never seen that in parkinson at all he clearly knows we're a strong team and we need to go out and try and win games but the Bromley game was a wonderful example of we are drawing. We didn't play well in the first half, but we've got on top of the game. There's 20 minutes left, and I was asked directly in the commentary, "Would you change now?" And I said, "No. I feel like we're all right. You know, we're not. We're not. It's not like when we tear teams apart, but we're on top of it, and I think we might get another goal." Parkinson wasn't thinking like that. Parkinson was like. I don't want to win. I'm not happy to take the chance that it might be a draw. I want to win. And so he made very bold double substitution, bringing off a defender, putting on a striker, changing the shape of the team. It was his default thing that he does when he wants to win a game. But he usually does that when we're losing or when we're a bit desperate. But he did it 20 minutes from the end, not the first time either, of a game that we were on top of. Because what was happening was good, but not good enough to guarantee a win. So he wanted to rip it up and take more chances. And we did, and we won it. I mean, hats off to the guy. Absolutely superb. Um, Coventry as well. He rotated our team against Coventry, left out a couple of good players, and in the context of Hayden had to pull out. But he got it right. Wow. So, yeah, I think Parkinson deserves an awful lot of praise. Also, he's got a lot of good quality players in who didn't really see themselves moving to the National League. To keep them happy, especially if they're players who aren't regularly playing, is a, a feat of man management. And they do seem to be a very happy squad. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ticks in the positive column for Phil Parkinson. Um, barcode Mark, anyone remember when was the last time we played a team two leagues above? And who was it? Well, the last time we played a team two leagues above was... Um, Hang on a second, I thought I got that wrong then. Stoke, 2015, in the same stage as we played Coventry in the FA Cup. We again took about 4,000 fans out, it's about an hour to the east. Stoke then were a big Premier League team, you know, consistently in Premier League for a long time, they're in the Championship now. Um, and they rotated their team, and it was a remarkable game. Because we developed a bit of a surprise tactical approach, and it worked, and we really did well. And with 15 minutes left, it was nil-nil at Stoke. Uh, Wrexham fans were having a wonderful time. And then Wrexham scored. Mark Carrington, a real great servant of the club, scored with a header. Terrific goal. One goal of the season. Steve Edwards' goal of the season trophy. And it was sensational. Stoke had brought on some of their big guns in order to try and change matters. And they pulled the goal back with 10 minutes left. And those big guns delivered because they scored the three goals between them. You may have seen Peter Crouch for his podcast. He's going to become a bit of a character since he retired. He came on and made a difference and he scored as well. And we lost 3-1, so it was heroic. Last time we beat a team from two or more divisions higher than us, well, we nearly did this uh, in 20, I want to say 2014, but it's not 2013, isn't it? 
um, against Brighton. Brighton were a championship team. We drew at Brighton, then drew at Wrexham, went through extra time, still level, and lost on penalties to them. But the last time we beaten the team was the round before that. We were a National League team. We were playing Brentford, yeah, Premier League Brentford. They were on the way up. They were right up at the top of League One, and they were clearly a team that were going places. And we won one nil there. It was a superb performance. That was an outstanding team. That's the great. Oh, I got the t-shirts on. The great ninety-eight points team with Andy Morell as manager. The most points again, just adding to our sort of sob story backstory. The most points ever achieved by a British football team without getting promoted. Ninety-eight points. Uh, because, unfortunately for us, Fleetwood uh, were a small club who had a lot of money pumped into them and signed Jamie Vardy, who then went to Leicester, became one of the top scorers in the history of the Premier League and played for England. So we were rather unlucky to coincide with him. And Scott Johnson says... Um, the goal by James Jones on Bromley, you know, he, the fastest off the bench... In how long? Well, I've got a disappointing answer for you here, Scott. James Jones, yeah, you're quite right. It's all passed me by. I don't know how, just how quickly he'd scored. Because he came on, and then three minutes later, he scored. That's that's quite something. But that's exactly what Sam Dolby did against Torquay when we won 6-0. He came on, and he scored three minutes later. I might get my stopwatch out and get get down to the actual nitty-gritty of seconds and see if they're, you know, which one's quicker. But, yeah, I'm afraid we've already done it this season. How bizarre, eh? We've got five goals for his subs this season. That feels like it could become a substantial number by the end. Um, Kurt Bennett. What happened after Mullen was helped off the field in the Coventry match? It sounded like the ref kept him off for a moment after play resumed. I don't understand why. Right then, Kurt. Now, <clears throat> if a player goes off the pitch, they're not allowed back on until the ref says so. In fact, I, I don't mean... Not, I mean, in normal play, no, that's not the case. So, you know, player runs in. Heads the ball back, can't stop himself, runs off the pitch. It, when it's in the flow of the game, that's okay. Just come back on. You don't have to ask the ref. But if a player actually leaves the pitch for any sort of specific reason, they've got to wait for permission to come back on. And the reason for that is sound. The application of it at Coventry, I thought, wasn't. Basically, the reason why is, imagine this. Blake goes off the pitch. He comes back, he wants to come back on. The ball is by there, and if he if he just comes straight on, he can surprise you, can't he? You know, if you're if he's an opponent, you don't see him there, and suddenly he runs off, he runs on the pitch from off it. You do, you're not looking at that, and he nicks the ball off you, and he's got a chance to score. That's wrong, isn't it? So that's the reason for the rule. The referee has to give the signal, come back on, when the ball's nowhere near that player. Now, I wasn't very happy with the way the ref did that on Saturday. I thought in other ways I was happy with him, so I'm not trying to crucify him. I think he took against Mullen a little. Mullen and Palmer both seem to have this a little bit. They do try and win fouls. They try to provoke contact. They sometimes exaggerate falls. And I think referees... I'm not sure it's a clever idea because referees see it happening and and start to think, yeah, this guy's diving. And then if they do get fouled, referees sometimes say, no, get up, he just dived again because they're assuming you. The, the little boy cried wolf now he seemed to have gone against Mullen who got fouled a couple of times I thought and it wasn't given and then the, the, the one where he got treated if I remember correctly I, again I think was a bit of a foul I think he manufactured it a bit Mullen and I think the ref was, might have been a little marked with him 
and didn't want to let him back on straight away. I think almost like to make a point. The thing is, he, I think he should have done because when the game restarted, the ball immediately went away from Mullin. So that was the perfect chance for him to just come straight on. It was obvious. But the ref turned his back on him and ran away from him. So Mullin was very frustrated. And then the ball then came back in Mullin's direction. So he was off the pitch for a bit longer again because then legitimately he couldn't bring him on. So I thought the referee missed a trick there that he should have just allowed him back on pretty quickly. You know, maybe he's trying to make a point. You weren't really injured. You didn't have to go to pitch injured. Maybe you've done it to waste time. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a punishment there. Um, of course, I'm a hypocrite because I'm a football fan. If if a player was doing that against Wrexham, I'd probably applaud the referee for doing that. As <laughs> it was Mullin, I was not happy there. <laughs> and Idina asks, during a free kick, what's stopping the player from intentionally kicking the ball at the wall's head? Um, nothing, essentially. I mean, if you aggressively kick the ball against somebody to hurt them, you're probably going to get sent off. You see these things happening occasionally. A player goes down fouled or claiming to have been fouled and an opponent doesn't like it for whatever reason and they run up and they smash the ball against the player on the floor. Generally, that player gets sent off. Um but there's nothing to stop you from smashing it into the wall. Um, there's nothing... I mean, it's 10 yards away. So, you know, as well, in terms of intent and things like that, they, they take into account how how far away is the ball from the player. So, like with handball, the ball's close. You can't help it if the ball's kicked onto your hand. But if it's further away, you know, you, you've got time to avoid it. Now, I think in the wall, generally, a referee would feel that you've got time to avoid it. So when they do warn players, don't raise your hands in the wall because we will give a handball because you've got 10 yards between you and the ball. So you've got time to, to get out of the way, take evasive action. So I don't think, I'm just trying to imagine it. I can't imagine a situation where a player would get into trouble for deliberately kicking the ball at a player's head in a wall because it would be really hard to tell, I think, if that's what you're thinking. If you're thinking about trying to get a deflection, um then, well, I mean, I suppose you could do that. You often see free kicks go in because they're deflected and the goalie's going one way, hits a player in the wall and it goes in the opposite corner. Um, that would be quite random in terms of you hit at someone's head, it might just bounce straight back and be clear. So, yeah, I, I think the bottom line is you don't tend to see it because it's not there's not really a definite advantage to doing that. If I've missed something that you're thinking... Please, you know, send another request in and, and, and clarify and I'll answer it. But I, I think the bottom line is that I'm not sure I can see all that much value to a player in trying to do that, really. Um, Bus Tales Any, always an entertaining uh, tweeter. And can I just say, well done for listening to the commentary on Tuesday when you were at your grandchild's uh, musical recital. Outstanding. That's what AirPods were, AirPods were invented for. Do yellow cards racked up in the FA Cup carry forward in the league? And there's another yellow card question I'll answer as well, which is Dave Woods. With Parkinson getting booked at Coventry at the weekend, do those bookings accumulate in the same way that they do for players? So these are our last two of the night. And I'll take them together. Right, yellow cards in FA Cup matches do not carry on to league games. So I made a mistake earlier in the season because Luke Young got his fifth yellow card of the season which is normally uh, an automatic booking, a uh, suspension, sorry. What I didn't, re didn't realise was that one of the yellows he got was in the FA Cup, and for disciplinary purposes, that's separate. So Young didn't get suspended, and then 
don't know if you've noticed the pattern here. The cut-off point for that suspension, because obviously if if everyone who got a yellow, fifth yellow card got booked, then you know, lots of players are going to get suspended. So they have a cut-off point where that no longer applies, and the figure is raised to, I think, 12. Um, that's the halfway point of the league season. So Young wasn't suspended and managed to get to the 23rd game of the season, league season, without getting the fifth yellow. So that gave him a lot of breathing space. And I don't know if you've noticed, but since that game, he's been booked in the last three matches. Luke, careful. You'll get close to a suspension again in a minute. Um, so, yeah, and it's four yellows, believe it or not, in the FA Cup before you get suspended. So you'd have to go some, really. And then the quarterfinals, they're wiped out as well. So you'd have to go some. However... If you get a red card in the FA Cup, that does count for the next league game. So if Young has got a red card at Coventry, he would have been suspended for the Bromley game. And depending on what type of red card, if you've got a direct red card, he'd be suspended for the next two games after that as well. So it's slightly complicated. As for managers, now here's the thing. Um, the rule saying that managers get yellow cards was brought in in 2018. Um, I'm just... Out of interest, uh, Everts, the Barrow manager, got a yellow card in the very first game Wrexham played after that rule was brought in. So, yeah, we benefited from it straight away. You could you could send a ref off a manager off in the past. The ref there wouldn't be a red card, but they would just come and they just point to the seats, and then the manager would be dismissed. Um, so they brought in the actual yellow and red card system for managers, which makes sense. Now, the person who launched this. Uh, in the Football League was Sean Harvey who is now of course working at Wrexham because he was Chief Executive of the Football League then and his explanation was rather good so they do rack up so every four yellows that a manager gets they don't get many they get a suspension All right? the suspension of course for managers is like you have to sit up in the seats or you know, if you get sent off during a game, you're not supposed to be able to watch the game. You're supposed to go somewhere else, you know, car park, changing room. Managers do all sorts, try and get around it, and sometimes succeed. Um, you know, you see Premier League managers going up in the seats. Anyway, that's a different matter. The thing with managers, with referees, is that uh, with, oh, I'm sorry, with managers, is that. The idea, and I've never actually seen this applied, but this is my understanding of it, certainly how, the, how it was all laid out, is that a booking for anyone on the bench counts towards the manager, if you will. So the idea is that, you know, a bench, you know, you've got all the coaches, like, rotating, so the, the one person will abuse the referee until he gets booked, then that will be somebody else's job. You know, that sort of thing was being done. So the idea was that the yellow would count towards the manager. So if there were two yellows against the bench, even if it wasn't a manager, the manager would be sent off so this, because he's in overall control of the bench. I have never seen that happen, and I've never really seen it referred to. But my understanding is that's the rule, certainly in the Football League. I have to ask Sean Harvey, won't I? Sure, you'll be able to clear it up. Right, that's it for this week. As you can tell, I seem to be flagging a little bit. I need to go and have a good lie down. Um... But as always, keep these questions coming in. They are fantastic. I do absolutely love them. Uh, it's just amazing being able to have a connection with the Wrexham fan community like this. So thank you so much for everything 
that you're doing and following this nutty old journey that Wrexham are on. With a final score of you lot loads of questions, me, Nell, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC. Not one mention of an obese president or pies. I'm so proud of myself. This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team.